Hi, I'm Cody Ferraro, and welcome to the Power of the Journey podcast, where we peel back the layers of the student-athlete experience by talking with those who have been through it, those who are impacting it, and guests within the athletics community who are actively trying to change it for the better. Today, we are powered by Game Plan, with partners such as the NFL, NBA, Pac-12, and over 300 athletic organizations, GamePlan is the only all-in-one platform for total athlete development on and off the field. GamePlan is also the single largest community of student athletes seeking employment opportunities in the world. So whether you're an organization looking to create comprehensive e-learning education or an employer looking for your next star employee, ask yourself, did I game plan it? For more information, visit GamePlan at wearegameplan.com. That's wearegameplan.com. Today on Power the Journey, we have the founder and CEO of Driving Company, a leading business-to-business media company in higher education with a specific focus on college athletics. You might have heard of the D1 ticker. He is also a partner and CMO of Athletics Sports Group a youth baseball and softball event and media company. After finishing up his baseball career at North Carolina Asheville, he spent a handful of years working with executive athletics leaders at USF and the University of Evansville. He's a media trailblazer and on the cutting edge of college athletics. Introducing Matt Roberts. Joining us from the great state of Kentucky, uh, we got Matt Roberts. Thanks for jumping on here. What's up, Cody? Thanks for hosting. Glad to be here. Looking forward to the chat. Yeah, I, I can't wait to learn about you. I'm, I'm really excited. Um, I mean, we, we know we know each other. We've talked. We've done some stuff together. However, learning about your journey is something that we've we've really never got into in depth. So this is a, a great opportunity for me to, to to learn some more about you and have our audience learn about you as well. Well, you know, this is a neat opportunity for me. We're used to being on in your seat, the interviewer, as opposed to the interviewee with everything we do across D1 Ticker and Athletic Director U and some of our other businesses. But that doesn't mean I might not fire some stuff back at you. So I hope you're ready as well. I'm ready. I think I'm ready as I, I could be. So I, I, I need to know the whole entire journey from, you know, being a, a star baseball player at your high school, picking UNC Asheville, what, what was the process? And just bring us through it. Well, first off, using the word star, that, that's, a, that's a significant overindulgence of what my athletic career was. But, um, you know, my journey in college athletics to college athletics maybe is marked by a couple of specific like any of us, we, you know, there's things that happened in your childhood, your adolescence, and then your student athlete experience, right. That start to formulate in your mind of, Hey, this is a space I'm really compelled to continue learning more about. I like what it stands for. My DNA matches with the industry. And for me, you know, I grew up in a household where college athletics and high school athletics were, you know, everyday occurrences. And that, that was life. You know, I had a, my dad was a football coach at Eastern Kentucky University for for some time. He played football at EKU under the legendary Roy Kidd when EKU was you know, really dominating the one double A scene, as it was known back then in the 70s and 80s. And, and Coach Kidd dominated well into the 90s. And then growing up here in Louisville, um, you know, on Saturdays, 
we would drive past Lexington and we'd go to football games in Richmond, Kentucky at EKU. So, you know, part of the beginning roots of, I suppose, my story is I wasn't subjected to college athletics just from like a power five, as we know it now standpoint. It's not like I, I was a Kentucky basketball fan grow, growing up. My family was a Kentucky or all Kentucky basketball fans, but it's not like you went to every Kentucky basketball game or every Kentucky football game. No, we were going to Eastern Kentucky games and, you know, Bellarmine, the then D2, now D1, that's, you know, a mile and a half from where I'm talking now, that's the games you went to growing up. So that sort of exposure to what college athletics uh, was all about is very different than I think if you grew up going to just Louisville basketball and Kentucky basketball and, and, and that sort of thing. So, and then, you know, my dad ended up being a high school football coach here in Louisville for a long stretch. And so many of my days after school, you know, in middle school, um, in grade school, were all about going to practice and being around teams. Clearly, I played a bunch of sports like we all did growing up. So you start to understand the analog between what you see somebody doing from a coaching and culture and communication standpoint with their own team. And then when you're a player, you, you know, I've got an eight-year-old daughter now, so I'm sort of trying to do the same thing with her. You don't quite get it until you get it. Uh, but being around it is just part of the, uh, I think, part of the maturation process. So, so right, I, you know, again, I think another really interesting note about my upbringing, uh, Louisville, Kentucky might be the most college-centric sort of big city in America. Um, you know, it's a top 50 market by Nielsen ratings, barely. It might be like 50 or 49. So it's right underneath the threshold or at the threshold. So it's sort of a big city, but man, here, pro sports have very little influence. There's certainly some Bengals fans and some Reds fans and some Colts fans and some Ravens fans these days with Lamar Jackson starring for the Ravens. But this town is about the University of Kentucky and the University of Louisville. 363 days a year. The only two days where they might take a back seat are like Oaks Day, the day before Derby, and Derby Day, right? And then it's horse racing. Otherwise, man, this is a college athletics town. So again, you grow up a place like Louisville, and that's all you're talking about all the time with your buddies in high school, with your with your family. That's what's on the radio. You know, when you open the newspaper, and I grew up delivering the newspaper as a kid. So, you know, you crack it open, you know, the first one to get it at 4 a.m. And what what section do you turn to first? Well, of course, the sports section. And it's all college athletics. Right. So, again, these are like markers in in my uh, in my past, in my childhood that I think little did I know it then. But I can easily reflect now and say, you know, this is why I love this space so much, and why I'm still so compelled to continue learning about how this space works from a business standpoint altogether. So, right, played baseball and basketball in high school, end up going to play baseball at UNC Asheville, small little D1 school in the mountains of North Carolina. Um, probably had no business playing at that level, realized that really quickly, and uh, simply because they wouldn't, you know, slap me on the bench the whole time or somehow figure out a way to get me out of school or make me transfer <laughs> – uh, ended up graduating from UNC Asheville, which we can talk more about that experience as well. And then came back home and did my master's work at, at, here at the University of Louisville. And, and probably it wasn't until after college that I started to realize maybe how I fit into college athletics and why I wanted to work in college athletics. But I, I think that's just maybe a little preview of what got me to that point and notably some occurrences in my life and sort of how uh, I was brought up to, again, why this space continues to be one that I 
love to read about. We clearly have a business in this space. Why I love to build relationships in this space. And we're all curious about where it's going as well, which is sort of the really um, interesting part for us where we sit right now. Are we going to be, can we tackle these issues? Or are they going to tackle us sort of thing? Mm-hmm. So why not football? I mean, you come from a football family. What football was it in that, uh, that whole entire player profile there? Yeah, no, it's a fair question. And I left my mom out of the start of the story, but she's really the, the key to the story, right? Um, <laughs> because she's who carted me around everywhere for years. And she's, she is who supported uh, my athletic endeavors, but it was, you know, it was sort of an unwritten rule in the Roberts household from very early on. Like the kids were not playing football, even though we were around it quite a bit. So I, I never played a, a day of organized football in my life and certainly plenty of street football and neighborhood football and flag football and touch football at school, et cetera, but never a day of organized in my life. Wow. So we graduate from UNC Asheville and, and the first stop, where, where's your first stop after that? Um, did you have a direction to go? Yeah. So I, I think, um, yeah, I'd be curious to hear sort of how, well, how you would answer this a little bit too, given your background as a student athlete, but this, you know, so this is the early 2000s. So it's not, I guess we're starting to turn the corner into sort of what modern college athletics is today. But at a place like UNC Asheville, that's still, I don't know, one of the smallest 50 budgets in D1, probably even one of the smallest 25 budgets in D1. You know, we weren't exposed to college athletics. There's no football, um, wonderful education, traditionally great men's and women's basketball, and a couple other Olympic sports. But we didn't have access to crazy facilities and training tables. We didn't even have a strength and conditioning coach when I was at UNC Asheville. So I don't say that negatively. I say that in the context of like, I really didn't even understand what the space was all about because we were focused on things college guys are focused on sometimes, Cody, as you know, uh, playing playing baseball, of course, and, and figuring out how we were going to progress, you know, after our undergrad degrees to do something fruitful so if you would have asked me when I was like a, a undergrad, what college athletics was, was all about, I'd probably would have said, oh, you mean the compliance people, mm. right? Because remember you had that meeting before the season every year and you had to sign off on, you know, what you would and wouldn't do. But beyond that, like, I didn't really know what college athletics was all about. I, I knew who our SID was, which we had like one at UNCA for everybody. Um, I knew who the AD was, but I didn't understand what, what she did by any stretch of the imagination. And there wasn't a sports major at UNC Asheville. And so, so, you know, maybe a little bit about um, the stroke of luck and Jim Collins, you know, return on luck type thing. I had this professor, two professors. I ended up getting a degree in political science, not really knowing what I wanted to do with it. But I had these two wonderful professors, um, Dottie and Dwight Mullen, who I think are still at UNCA in some capacity. And they taught urban theory and urban planning and the history of politics in, in, in urban areas. And so I just, you know, I just latched onto those guys and took every class that they taught. And then there was a, a, a professor who I think is still there as well named Surain Subramaniam. And he taught these super compelling Southeastern Asian politics classes. Like, and so I could have told you more about you know, Singaporean politics and Indonesian politics and Malaysian politics than I could have about, you know, the business of sports when I was an undergrad and still didn't quite understand what I was going, going to do with 
that political science background, I also did a minor in business management. So I knew there was a little bit of, I, I wanted to understand how the financial world worked. Um, but then the University of Louisville here at home had and has a, a notable sports administration program. So I think it probably wasn't honestly until I came back after, so this would have been summer of 04 and I jumped right into my master's after I had graduated in the spring of 04 from UNCA. And, and, you know, Holly Sheely, who's now the AD at Transy, uh, Transylvania, D3 over in Lexington. John Carnes, who's still the senior associate AD for compliance at Louisville. Like I had those two for my very first class uh, in, in my master's coursework. And so you quickly get exposed to people who are working in the industry and who are also teaching classes. And, and, and you can really start to plug into um, how the space works. I, went, I ended up interning in compliance at UofL. This would have been, you know, 0405. And, you know, I knew very quickly that I didn't want to work in compliance specifically long term, but that's okay. You learn a lot about what you, where you know you don't fit as much as you do where you do fit at times. So you, you asked the question of my first stop after UNC Asheville, and that was back here at the University of Louisville, which I was doing coursework for about two and a half semesters. Um, and that's where I started to understand how the space worked. You know, I had Holly for a couple of classes and she made us as part of one of the business class, sports business classes, you had to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. You know, and there was like a weekly assignment where you had to take a Wall Street Journal piece and apply it to the sports industry. And, you know, I, I'm still old school. Like I still want the Wall Street Journal physically in my hands every day. And little did I know then, but simply being told uh, through an assignment and a requirement that I had to read the Wall Street Journal every day, I started to understand the greater business ecosystem and how sports plugs into it. So invaluable experience at UofL and, and, and Holly uh, was at UofL administration, again, now the AD at Transylvania. And every time I see her at NACDA or NCAA convention, I'm like, hey, thank you for making me read the Wall Street Journal because now I don't want to go without it. Um, and it's those kind of relationships and lucky opportunities to learn from those types of folks that you look back and go, wow, incredibly invaluable. So it's, it's a pretty tight knit community within, you know, the athletics administration world, uh, as, as we've seen, uh, the network is invaluable, like you said. Um, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, but very interested on how you've seen that network, right? Work outside of college athletics. So in, in, in your different businesses that you do, how important is a network to you in order to be successful? Arguably, maybe the second most critical thing behind how much sweat equity and work ethic you're going to apply to an endeavor, right? I mean, um, so to set the table, right, we have a couple of different businesses that we uh, run or help run these days, primarily around college athletics, which, you know, many listeners to this conversation may know D1 Ticker, which is a daily curated news uh, email and research firm. Um, and we have, you know, thousands of administrators who read that service every day. The one people may not know as much about is called um, Athletic Sports Group, also based here in Louisville. And we are, you know, one of the five largest youth baseball and softball events and media companies in the nation. So, okay, face value, you go, okay, college athletics, youth baseball and softball. Might not be much crossover. There's tons of crossover. Um, number one, a couple of our companies use a lot of college baseball and softball facilities. 
So clearly at times being able to get to the right person in an athletic department because of D1 ticker and quickly explaining to them, Hey, we also put on youth baseball and softball events and we're really interested in renting your facility for X number of weeks throughout the, I mean, it's easy to grease the skids that way a little bit, right? At mm-hmm. least from an introductory standpoint, and you've already built a brand and hopefully built a lot of trust through delivering the news to these leaders every single day for the last eight plus years. So that's certainly one way um, that the network matters outside of college athletics specifically, but integrates into our overall business objectives. The, the other is probably even more important, and that is, you know, for years we've said in college athletics, our business practices or forward thinking mindset on how to generate revenue, how to handle donor relations, how to handle uh, fan involvement, egress, ingress, concession lines, bathroom lines, how many entrances do you need? Where do you put the trash cans? Not, and this is even pre-COVID, right? We've got even more of those things to think about now. Um, I think in college athletics, we've always looked to the professional sports landscape on how to do certain things and, and simply bring them downstream into college athletics. And I, and I would argue in the youth baseball and softball space and the, uh, the amateur event space, which we're doing, you know, 500 events per year, we can take a lot of those same learnings and continue bringing them downstream to a space that needs that same sort of progressive mindset uh, and stuff like not just business operations or, or event execution, but, and we can talk deeper on this front, but how college athletic programs are recruiting these days digitally socially, graphically, video, from a content standpoint, we've borrowed a ton of those ideas in our business. So if, if you were to look at how we market some of our companies, which there's eight different companies, youth baseball and softball companies that make up the athletic sports group, each of which serve a different segment of the market, whether that's geographically, uh, talent level, age level, you'd see a lot of stuff that you'd also see coming out of you know, Kentucky football and how they're trying to recruit people. Um, so that's probably been the biggest uh, beneficial angle of the knowledge base and the connections we have in college athletics is being able to port that same type of um, forward thinking mindset into a, a space that uh, we want to be really competitive and aggressive on growing our business there as well. So we, we graduate at Louisville master's degree. And, and now we're in it, right? Now, now we're, we just had a, a very segmented, very pinpoint um, degree that we're just about to use at this point, right? We're getting into different universities. Where was your first stop? Yeah, well, and the story of the story of D1 Ticker specifically, and we talked about this return on luck. So, you know, I'm in my second semester or spring semester of my grad work at UofL. And literally, like all I have left is you know, the like long-term internship where you have to go work somewhere for six months to a year and complete all sorts of practicums and projects. And, and so I'd applied for some stuff and, you know, I wanted to work for the American Junior Golf Association, like really badly. And that didn't work out um, and, and knew that I wanted to explore college athletics more. And so applied blindly to an internship at the University of Evansville, about two hours west of, of us here in Louisville. One AAA school, of course, still no football, but everybody knows Evansville from wearing the sleeves on the basketball uniforms back in the day when they were really, really good. Go over for an interview and, you know, stroke of luck, the AD at at, um, 
Evansville at the time is a guy named Bill McGillis, who's now the AD at the University of San Diego. And, and, and by no means am I suggesting Bill quickly took a liking to me because he's got a baseball background and a bunch of sons who played and are still playing college baseball, one at the University of Southern Mississippi. But that was probably part of it, right? I mean, he, I thought I knew what compliance was, so he grilled me on compliance. He probably quickly figured out I didn't know what the hell compliance was. Um, but I was honest with them, and Larry Ryan was the deputy AD at Evansville at the time. He's now, he now runs the foundation at the University of New Mexico. And I remember him asking me a question sort of like what you asked me earlier. And he was like, man, like, don't you want to go into coaching? You come from a family with a guy who was a coach. And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in way more than coaching. And I mean, I can remember sitting in his office not quite 20 years ago, but boy, that's coming up soon. You know, 17 years ago and 16 years ago, I'm being, being asked that question. And so I get lucky enough to go to Evansville and I was Bill's personal intern for a whole year. And the way this relates to D1 Ticker, number one, Evansville is a place like UNC Asheville, maybe not too different from Lehigh, honestly, where you, you have, um, you know, like 11 people to run the whole department, everything, you know, and that's counting your trainers. Um, so like that was a godsend because I said I wanted to, I was interested in way more than coaching. Well, like you had to do it. So, you know, you, you had to do the game ops every day, every game. Both soccer, men's and women's, baseball and softball in the spring, men's and women's basketball, volleyball, like six days a week, you're working a day and then you're going to, for me, it was, I'm going to go do PA or I'm going to run, you know, the headset to communicate between the PA guy and the, the marketing team. And, and you just, I mean, you want to talk about a crash course in how a department operates and again, continuing to build this understanding for yourself personally about how you think you fit longer term. But the moral of the story is like, Bill just gave me access, man. And he just said, um, because it was a small department, he needed help. And we, you know, Alexis Henderson was an, an intern there the same time that I was, she went to work for the NCAA and now works at North Carolina. I mean, we just had this awesome group of interns, this small tight group of administrators who are now spread throughout the nation. And you quickly built this bond because you worked some serious hours. But for me as a 23-year-old guy at the time, I got exposed broadly for that year. And then I stayed at Evansville another, another year and a half working for Bill that um, little did I know it, but I was building this perspective of the industry at the C-suite level that a 24-year-old, you know, you couldn't go out and find that job. I just lucked into it, right? And so, so later and how that led into D1 Ticker is, um, is pretty obvious, but it's all, it, it really harkens back to, you know, Holly Shealy making me read the Wall Street Journal and Bill McGillis giving me this perspective of the industry that I had no idea what I was getting at the time, but it was a real life education every day from coaching searches to how to set up the volleyball net before a volleyball game and everything in between. But that was the foundation of how I came to understand college athletics at an intimate level. So feet in the fire, that's, that's how we learned, right? It's yeah, hundred miles an hour, figure it out. Now that translates pretty well into the entrepreneurship world. Um, so at what point in your career are you like, Hey, listen, this was a great experience. I still want to be in the same market. However, I want to bet on myself a little bit. I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, cause let's, let's be honest. Like there's not really too much security with being an entrepreneur. 
None. If actually. you fail, right. yeah, it's on your shoulders, right? <laughs> right. right. So right. that's a big decision. Um, yeah. How, how do we get to it? Yeah. Um, you know, I talked about my dad being a, a football coach and later a principal. Uh, my mom was a longtime teacher. So, you know, there's in my family and in my wife's family as well, who is from here, it's full of educators. But the one guy who wasn't an educator in our family was my grandfather, who was my guy, my late grandfather. So he ran our family insurance business. And he was the he was the guy who made me start getting up early to deliver newspapers. Right. So the the understanding of a blue collar work ethic to build your own business and to maintain your own business. My uncle later took over that business and it has since been sold. That's probably where I started to understand how you can make your own path. So I get done working at Evansville. Bill goes to USF, University of South Florida. Um, I come back here to Louisville in private business and was selling commercial airtime for a TV station here, which was a terrific learning experience in and of itself. Always knew I wanted to get back to college athletics. I get married in this stretch uh, and end up going to USF with Bill. So I'm there for a year and a half, maybe. And my wife was an advancing leader in a company called the Jam Brands, which at the time was the second largest cheerleading and dance competition company in America. So they offered her a chance to come back to Louisville to be a vice president. And one of the founders of that company, um, who Kelly and I had known for years, had known his family and his wife, and had become a mentor of mine as well, he said, hey, we've talked for a long time about starting other stuff in the sports space. Let's figure that out we're going to bring Kelly home to be a VP, but we're going to start a new entity together. And, and I'll tell you more about that, but that was that. So we come back home. And as I reflect on it now, it's easy for me to say, and I do say it at times like college athletics can be really boxy, higher education. There's a lot of red tape and sure you can be creative, but can you really create your own new revenue streams? Can you create your own path and control, control your own destiny? I mean, those are such general statements and the answer is you can. Uh, but for me and for my you know, family situation. The other thing about Louisville, Kentucky, Cody, is like Louisville, Kentucky is a phenomenal place to raise a family. I mean, it is a wonderful, like this hybrid of a, of a Midwestern and Southeastern marketplace. And obviously we've got the horses and you can get to big, really big cities in a five hour radius. Um, and you can fly anywhere in three to four hours. It's just a wonderful spot. So Wanting to come back here once we were married and knew we were ready to have kids, that you know that was a that was a big thing too. But on the entrepreneur entrepreneurial front, boy, once you first get a taste and you understand that um, you can implement some ideas that you've had for a while in different spaces and they become living, breathing business entities that make real money, and uh, you control your own work hours. But here's the misnomer on like everybody, and my mom still does this, right? She's like, well you know, are you working today? I'm like, what? <laughs> Just because I can control my own work hours doesn't mean I work any less than those days back in Evansville. And now it's, you know, this is what I want to spend all my time on um, outside of when I'm with my family and, and playing a little bit of golf. Right. But like, so it's a bug, right? Like you, you can speak to this as much, like you, you really get bit by the opportunity to build something yourself with a team of people you love and you sort of hand select at times. And that's a really compelling proposition. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's funny that you said, are you working today? I, I blame Hollywood. Um, everyone thinks that this, uh, 
this entrepreneurship or start your own business. You know, you put in a few hours here and then you go to Miami for the weekend. It's Man, the hey, listen, my, my father-in-law who was um, like, uh, I think a, a main fa- mainframe programmer at a, at a local notable bank here in town and is as like quality of a, of a guy as you'll ever meet. And he'll still tease me today and be like, hey, you just want to go, like, I'll meet you at a coffee shop. You want to hang out? <laughs> no, that's not what my days are like, man, but you're welcome to tag along so you can really get a taste. <laughs> oh, that is the truth. And also this this pitch on uh, on Louisville, might have to start talking to my wife about uh, about re- relocating uh, because you sold it pretty well. So well, it's a great spot. It really is. It's a terrific spot. So with the entrepreneur, you know, mindset, did you fall back on your student athlete um, experiences, you know, to become successful? No doubt. I think we all do, whether we recognize it or not. And for me, again, I'll, I'll repeat what I said earlier in the conversation. You know, I was a kid who probably should have been playing like NAI baseball, Not, nothing against NAI baseball. There's plenty of NAI kids who can play D1 baseball. But um, I had no business when I went to UNC Asheville thinking I could play Division I college baseball. Um, but if you're going to stick, you know, like you're going to have to work. And I, the recruiting class that I went in with was 23 guys, which is a pretty big baseball recruiting class. Three of us, three ended up graduating and, and even making it four years. And so, you know, that that's probably part of the stick to And um, I, I was just wasn't going to be outworked. I wasn't very good, but I was going to get better. And, you know, I, I hit 299 two years. Couldn't even hit 300, but I could hit 299. And on a team that we weren't great, but I think we still hold the school record for number of wins, which isn't even a significant amount, but it's something I'll still hang my hat on. And right, it's all those things. And this is probably one of a soapbox I have for mainly members of the media who at times bash the student athlete experience. The student athlete experience is a real, tangible, incredibly valuable thing. And that gets unfortunately glossed over too often in in sort of the media narrative around our industry. And we, we can talk about maybe why that is, but um, you know, all of those things that are communicated by the NCAA through some of the commercials out there. And, and, and you know, it as well, you know, the 5am wake up call to go work out and then you've got a day's worth of class and lifting before practice. Mm -hmm. And then you get done with practice and you've got a bunch of studying. If you're doing this thing, right. You're trying to excel, right. I mean, um, it's, it's an incredible four years. And, and I'm not going to sit and go, Oh, I had to figure it out all four years. Cause I didn't. But for me, it was, a, it was a really solid three years, freshman year. I did not have it figured out academically, athletically. Listen, I went to this amazing high school called DuPont manual high school, which is consistently like ranked one of the top 100 high schools in America. It's got this amazing STEM program. I mean, I was around just some incredibly bright, I had no business being there and hanging. I was bringing the median ATC, ACT score down, SAT score down, IQ down, like the whole nine at that school. Um, but you, you, again, you're exposed to people who intellectually stimulate you. But I still wasn't ready for college when I got there. Um, and it took me a year to figure it out. But all the things that the multitasking, the ability to, you know, I took 17 hours my senior spring season during a baseball season like nobody would ever advise that but I had to because I'd screwed around early on and I was behind the hours right so I was bound and determined to graduate in four years and keep moving 
I mean, who I am as a student athlete and, and, and some of the skills and intangibles that I think I started building then or built in part or even in full then are all about what student athletes go through today, what you and I went through. Um, we're not the modern college student athlete, but the, the road trips, the camaraderie, the bonds you build, but really it's about the sweat equity. And that's something that, again, I think about in my children today who are, who are young, they're about to be nine and seven, but how do you instill that in them? Because that's such a key ingredient in any success story, in my opinion, um, in any business is you've got to be able to, you got to be able to put in the time uh, to learn it. And then you got to be able to put in the sweat equity to build it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it never, when we, when we look at the, the people who are heroines in their sport, right? The, the Kobe Bryant's, the Derek Jeter's, there's one constant ingredient and that's that they're in the gym or they're hitting the ball 15,000 times more than any other person. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, former AD at Stony Brook, Jim Fiore, up in your neck of the yeah, woods, right? Yeah. Um, and Jim's just a phenomenal guy, but he had this practice with his son. And I think his son would be like a freshman student athlete right now, but he did this like throughout his son's teenage years. Like he would pack his lunch for him and on his, the bag of his lunch, he would, you know, write something inspirational might be strong because every day we can't think of something inspirational, but he would write a message to his son every day and just put his lunch in it. Son's take, son takes the lunch to school and that's what's in front of him. And, and I was literally just thinking this morning, cause I'm coaching third grade field hockey right now which I don't know anything about field hockey, but we were told that if there's not a coach, there's not a team. So I'm going, okay, well, we need to have a team. So I'll coach. And, and it's a third and fourth grade league. Our team is just third graders, right? So we got that disadvantage. And these girls play hard. I mean, they, they play hard, but we're a year less developed physically than many of these teams because of COVID, it's not like they had a year of last year of practice. So skill level, we're probably behind a little bit. And so I've been thinking about that same thing, man. Like, how do you, I almost wrote Dawson, my daughter, a note this morning, cause she played really hard and she's, you know, she's competitive as hell, but she's also not the greatest sport as a byproduct of that emotion, which is probably how I was as a kid. Right. And I thought that same thing, man, I'm like, nobody's born into greatness. And I'm like Dawson, I'm gonna write her a note. Like it takes every day to be focused on, and you don't have to be a great field hockey player, but you got to be a kind person, and that takes effort, right? And you got to be humble, and that takes effort. And if you want to be good at something, whatever that something is for her, it takes a lot of damn effort. Um, so that's you know, I just maybe it sounds all like hunky dory Kentucky. Yeah, but it's like, it takes blue collar work ethic, man. It's, uh, it's I, so crucial. There's, there's nothing, there's no ingredient that you can put in there to substitute for, for hard work and, and the process on it. Right. Like we, we are living this day in this age of instant gratification where that's just not reality. It's, it's not reality. Like when you talk about a Michael Jordan story where he's getting cut from his from the team, high school vet? Yeah. Right. Like, exactly. It's a process and it's, and it's the process. that's the most important part. Or, or the Tiger Woods story. Yeah. And then there's video of Earl Woods who had Tiger out there on the range when he's seven years old for hours. I mean, stuff doesn't happen overnight. You got to work. Yeah. No. And, and if, if we bring that back to the whole entire entrepreneur, like mindset, right. And the whole entire 
entrepreneur being successful, it's the same exact formula. Yeah. It's, it's who you surround yourself with people, like who you're going to surround yourself with, what people so crucial and how hard you're going to work. Right. Yeah. I mean, those two ingredients, um, probably oversimplified, but I'm not a complicated guy. I'm not smart enough to think that way. Those, those two are just, I think the building blocks of anything really successful. I, I agree. I, now changing gears here a little bit, we're going to go into college athletics because you and I, I mean, I'm about, I don't even know seven years removed at this point. Um, and it's different. The landscape is different. The challenges are different. What do you think is the biggest challenge that it's facing college athletics right now? Singular challenge. You're asking me just the one biggest challenge. Ah, you can throw three out there if you want. Oh man. Um, you know, I think in, in a nutshell, the biggest challenge that we face is how to appropriately value a student athlete. And I think you can take that and extrapolate it into, of course, NIL, because we're that's so hot and heavy on us today. And it's, what's today, June the 11th. So that's coming in 21 days in some states, right? Um, but the greater revenue ecosystem of college athletics and, and the large business has become, I hope we can do that in the context of not losing sight of the value of the education student athletes receive at premier learning institutions. I mean, these are some of the best global institutions of training the next wave of leaders and doctors and pharmacists and engineers and insert profession here. Right. So I think as a general statement, it's like, how do we appropriately value the student athlete and how do we not lose sight of the benefits provided to student athletes to help them grow into the next generation of leaders? It's a good question. I mean, it's a good answer. I, I'm, I'm fine. Like when we talk about NIL, like the whole compensation, it's so in depth. It's so, um, it's so complex and, that's way above my pay grade. And mm -hmm. you know what, if we want to compensate, that's okay. The one thing I hope, and it's going to be hard to do is the nuances within the student athlete journey, right? The, the bus trips that people are engaged and they're just having a good time. Um, even, even like the two a days where you don't have class and you're just hanging out of the house. If we put something else on the student athlete plate, I, I just hope that stuff doesn't go away. Cause that's the stuff that I remember. Like, yeah, yeah. That's the stuff that has deep seated with me. And, and NIL could certainly create strain on some of those bonds and situations you're describing. I think all things equal, like it's going to normalize itself. The marketplace will take care of it. Um, but coaches these days and administrators these days, but maybe more so coaches, it's a whole new and different challenge and wrinkle <clears throat> for them to think about from a team dynamics standpoint. But ego has been around since the, you know, since the dawn of man, this is just going to be another way that egos get impacted positively or negatively. And coaches are going to have to be really creative and in touch with, I mean, you, you sort of might have to be a psychologist these days, but we have those on staff, right? I mean, many departments have those types of professionals and that's one beauty of the growth of college athletics is additional professional services to help these student athletes make sense of what they're doing now and where they can go and how they do that really effectively. So Maybe that goes into a little bit of what we said earlier, the value of the student athlete while not losing sight of the value they're being provided. Mm -hmm. There's this whole class of professional services that, is, that have now been built into what the college athletics ecosystem and the student athlete experience is 
whether it's mental health or it's, you know, dietary health and strength and conditioning and tutoring. Uh, it's a holistic experience that if done right is, um, you know, short of maybe being through a military, uh, academy and that preparation, it, I, I can't imagine there's a more opportunity, there's a greater opportunity out there to, uh, hone a lot of these young people into really just phenomenal professional folks moving forward beyond their athletic career. You touched on something earlier that I didn't want to jump over and and you're the marketing guy. I mean, you guys have done a phenomenal job with, with your businesses and such. How does marketing change now with the student athlete experience in NIL? Um, and how do even those relationships change with companies that are trying to, you know, talk to a person with for an NIL situation? I don't know, man. I don't know that I have the answer, but I know the next 18 months and maybe 24, 36 months is just going to be fascinating to see how all these little storylines develop and uh, which NIL companies are still around in 12 months, right? Uh, federal legislation, how that impacts how student athletes can do certain I mean, we're two weeks away from the NCAA saying they're going to come out with guidelines, right? We don't even know what we don't know in this space. So all the speculation and all the um, guesses and, and examples of what we think is going to happen, I think there's a lot of educated and really intelligent people who probably are really close on it. And clearly we're, we're a part of a firm, student athlete NIL, that will work with brands to make sense of this marketplace at the brand level. And there's going to be, there's going to be brands who have never spent a dollar in college athletics. who are going to see this as like the greatest grassroots marketing opportunity of all time, because now they can leverage tens of thousands of student athletes to, uh, to really make an impression on the next wave of student athletes. And the, whenever kids are starting to use social media these days, let's just say the 12 to 18 year olds and start to build that affinity because lifetime customer value for some of these large companies is a serious endeavor and how their enterprises are, you know, run long-term. And as soon as you can ingrain in your head, Cody, that um, where we grew up, a Coke was a Coke. It didn't matter if it was Sprite or Dr. Pepper or Pepsi. Like it was called a Coke, right? So like, I'm, I'm a Coke guy. I, I grew up. So that's a sort of lifetime value. So uh, long-term lifetime value. But I wouldn't even venture a guess at, at how these things may change because um, I think we will be wrong. And I think what's fascinating as can be is, is going to be to see how some of this stuff plays out. Uh, I don't know that I don't know that first to market is the only well, first to market is not the only uh, variable that ever matters in success of business. Best to market is really damn important, too. First to market may be even less important right now in NIL. Um given all the changes that, that are about to occur. Mm -hmm. I mean, first to markets, yeah, important, but when you don't know the rules that you're playing the game by, it's, uh, it's tough to win the game. Uh, yeah, and, and of course there's ways to be first to market and build a moat so that, you know, you can, you've already got a head start on folks to understand. Now, when we go back to our networking topic, mm -hmm. the network's crucial, but um, there's some great companies doing some innovative stuff out there around NIL clearly. And um, there, there's many who will stay ahead who are ahead now, but there's just a lot of middle and, and periphery companies that I think are trying to figure out how do they provide value, much less extract some of the value. 
And I don't think we're going to know that until a couple of years down the road. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, one of the last topics I want to hit because I've, I've seen it constantly and with new change, with innovation, with just times changing, there's going to be a lot of people who are saying, Hey, you know what? I'm good. I'm, I'm ready to retire. I'm ready to get out of college athletics. I've, I've had a great career here. And we've seen it a lot, especially if you get the ticker, right? Those, those announcements are coming <laughs> one or two a day. How are these, um, these institutions actually recruiting to fill those roles? Well, change is hard. I mean, that's a general, I think, truism of life. And if, if I've been in this industry for the majority of my career and I've done my job in a certain way or run my team in a certain way or led an apartment a certain way, what's on the, what's in front of us now and on the precipice of really taking effect, not just NIL, but student athlete empowerment movement, I guess NIL is a part of that, but compensation and where that's headed, the continuing gap between this general haves and have, have nots, which, um, which is a real thing. I don't, I can totally understand why some people are saying like, as you said, I'm, I'm good because change is hard and there's a lot of change coming at us really fast. But in terms of how departments are, you know, recruiting, which I think that's an interesting word versus filling these job positions. I think any department who's truly recruiting, which a lot of them are, right. I mean, a lot of these administrators, they've got a list of a couple people who they really would look to for their next, if, if X job opens in their department, they know where they're going to go. But I would sort of pose the question too of, you know, how democratic are they doing that? Uh, how inclusive is that being done? And, you know, I think the, there will be tools in the marketplace really soon that will help do that more efficiently. But anytime you're proactive as opposed to reactive and just waiting for applications to hit your desk and then sorting through it, you want somebody who doesn't even want to leave where they're at, right? And you want to compel them that your opportunity is, is so damn interesting that they're going to leave an amazing opportunity to come take it. And, and it's easy to say that, Generally, not every position or every department has the bandwidth, resources, personnel to do that. But, you know, if, if uh, Nick Saban's looking for a quarterback for his next recruiting class, like he's not posting something on some recruiting board saying, you know, send me your stuff. I need two, two quarterbacks in this class. He's going to go find two guys that he wants, and he's going to have to go up against Georgia and Texas and LSU and Florida and you know, Notre Dame, and he's going to have to convince them that how, and, and that's, you know, that's really what you want to be doing from personnel talent management standpoint as well, I think. Um, so I, I think it's, it's funny, man, right, right now we're sitting in the middle of June. We commonly see a spike in industry transactional volume, sort of May, June, July, August in a non-pandemic year, sort of after the final four through the summer Maybe it's a bell curve. I've never looked at it, but it's probably sort of a bell curve. I'm not sure if we've seen an earlier spike because of budgets unfreezing and people rehiring for jobs that they, you know, they had to uh, tighten up on when the pandemic happened, or if that summer spike just moved earlier in the year because of everything surrounding the pandemic. Regardless, we've never seen this amount and volume of transactional. Uh, vol, um, uh, changes that interfaces with our products, D1 Ticker specifically and D1 Jobs, which which is the largest jobs board in the marketplace too. So um, I always think though, you're better off 
proactive and recruiting for your team as opposed to just reactive, but you, you never know. You got to look under every rock and around every corner and call every reference because as, as we know, fit and talent identification and securing talent is an incredibly inexact practice. And if anybody had it figured out, um, you should interview them because it's a skill that is immensely valuable in building the right team. Uh, and we could all, we could both point to some ADs who have had incredible track records doing it with coaches. Uh, and we all know the age old adage of, you know, how much you lose in the, the wash when you make a change or, and you have to make a personnel decision like that. So I know a lot of smart people in college athletics are thinking about it this way. That's a good point. Yeah, that's interesting. So I got, I got one question. I know we're, we're getting close to time here. One last question, and I ask everyone this, but one challenge, one, um, one thing that you had to go through that you learned a lesson that you keep and you lean on every single day. Yeah, really, I think it's that freshman year at UNC Asheville. Um, you're in high school and the, the talent pool's something different and you think you're a good ball player and you think you got your head on straight and you go to college and uh, you realize, oh, I'm not as accountable to myself as I thought I was and I'm not as good of a player as I thought I was. And uh, sorting through that emotionally, mentally, physically, and figuring out a way to come out the other side as a better person, as a better student, uh, as a better teammate. Um, that's probably the one year in my life where a major wake up call and you got to figure out how you're going to reposition yourself to still have success, you know, in the immediate term there in college playing baseball. And that kind of leads you into the next phase of your life of having success, you know, after, after your undergrad experience. So there's, there's very little probably that happens in my life today that I can't pinpoint back to that year. And, and are you going to put up or are you going to just slink back of whatever the, the right terminology is? It's a formative year for sure for me. Oh, that's great. All right, Matt, I really appreciate your time. This was fantastic. Um, learned a lot. Had a great conversation. Um, just thank you. Yeah. Thanks for hosting. And um, I'm glad we finally did this. Appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. I'd like to thank Matt Roberts for joining us on this edition of Power the Journey. If you enjoyed our conversation today, please let us know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check back in every week when we peel back the layers of the student-athlete experience by talking with those who have been through it, those who are impacting it, and guests within the athletics community who are actively trying to change it for the better. Don't forget, your journey has power.